Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great educational website? Then go to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll free of charge. Get a free class 10 Myths of American History when you do enroll. Look, I've got awesome classes there. Classes on the Constitution, classes on the Civil War, classes on secession, classes on American history. A whole slew of great stuff just waiting for you. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com, enroll, and get a real history education. Defining post-war American conservatism is difficult, as a new book explains, and I'll talk about that on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to McClanahan Academy. You've already heard about that. But again, listening in June 2023, use that coupon code JUNE. Get 25% off all my classes at McClanahan Academy, and the prices do go up in July of 2023, so this is the best price you're ever going to get at 25% off right now. So head over to McClanahan Academy, use the coupon code JUNE, and get a great deal on everything I've got there. From the most inexpensive to the most expensive, you get 25% off. And if you want to stock up, now's the time to buy the most expensive classes because You'll never see him for that price again. You can also support the show by clicking on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com, going to Spotify for podcasters. You can throw a few pennies my way or clicking on the little heart button under this video if you're watching on YouTube, the super thanks button. Throw a few pennies my way that way too. But as always, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Let people know you love it. Share it around on social media. Leave it that five-star review. Leave a text review wherever you can. Comment on YouTube for the algorithm. And do share it around on social media. Let people know you love it. That gets more eyes and ears on the program. All right, well, let's talk about American conservatism. I've been meaning to hit this article for a few weeks now. just haven't gotten around to it. But because of what I talked about this week with DeSantis and this tweet from someone in his campaign team that you cannot be anti-Lincoln and be a Republican and conservative, I thought it was a good time again to talk about what is American conservatism. This is a really confusing topic. And I can give you how confu- explain how confusing it is because even people that talk about it all the time don't really know what to do to put people into certain categories. I think part of that is because conservatism isn't really an ideology. If you're really conservative, you're not an ideologue. You're, you believe in tradition. Now, tradition is not ideology. Tradition is time-tested things that people do because they work, generally. And they fit with the culture of the people and the place and the time. That's why we have traditions. These are things that work and that people enjoy. An ism, an ideology, is untried in many ways. It's untested. It's something that you think about that may work, but maybe when you try it, it doesn't actually work. And this is where you get to the 20th century and the pragmatists and all these kind of things. Well, we're going to try this till it works or it doesn't work. They're all just ideologues 
trying different things to try to get them to work, and it becomes a great big mess. But uh, an, a conservative isn't really an ideologue. Now, you could say that they have a certain belief system on certain things, like, for example, maybe it's economics. Maybe they are a free marketeer. Maybe they believe in something else. And so you could say, well, some of these things have been tried and some, you know, but but some of that does come down to ideology. Now, we can also look at uh, history as a guide for what works and doesn't work. And so when you go into that direction, then you're not really an, an ideologue anymore. You're simply saying, well, these are the things that have worked in history, and these are the things that haven't worked in history, and so we should do these things and not these things. <clears throat> People have been dealing with a lot of these issues that we deal with now for a, for a very long time. And so maybe we should listen to the past. And conservatives tend to try to do that. Now the left does too. And they would say, well, yeah, we need to listen to the past. Look at all these horrible things all these people did in the past. And if we listen to the past and we should use the past as a guide, then we don't want to do any of this stuff. we got to do all these new things because this old stuff is horrible. So again, what we get at the end of the day is really a war on history. A war defined by our understanding of the past. A war defined by our understanding of human nature in many ways. However, you do have people on the left that want to disregard all of that and completely start over. But this is what we're dealing with now. And the same can be said for American conservatives. So, for example, if we're going to ask, you know, who is an American conservative? Is John Adams an American conservative? How about John C. Calhoun? Or are they both American conservatives? This is what Russell Kirk was trying to figure out in the conservative mind. And I've said this before on this show. I remember back in the 90s, I asked Clyde Wilson, I said, you know, how, how can uh, Russell Kirk put John C. Calhoun and John Adams in the same book on American conservatism? And he said, well, I think uh, Russell Kirk was a little bit too, uh, too eclectic in, in who, he, uh, who he brought into the fold, right? So <laughs> how do we find this thing? Now, people are still talking about this. There's a great book uh, by Nash. It's uh, the, uh, the title is, um, my memory's escaping me. It's a long title, but it's Post-War American Conservatism. And it's George Nash. It's a book that everyone should get if you're interested in political philosophy, political history, political ideology, anything like that, particularly on the right. And he does a very good job talking about the Straussians and talking about the opposition of the Straussians. And in many ways, this is what we're dealing with now. The Straussians have become ascendant. It's their view on what makes a conservative that really dominates everything. And so we, we play back and forth on that. This is the, the uh, tweet that I talked about yesterday. It's a very Straussian view. If you're not, if you're not sufficiently pro-Lincoln, then you're not really Republican or conservative. And to think that Republicans are conservatives anyways is just a complete laughable position. But, I mean, this is where we are. This is what people think. And that's built on the Straussian position. You see all these people that run around as being, you know, having a voice on social media. They, they don't really know anything. They just parrot whatever they get from the think tanks and the establishment that runs around and talks about this stuff. It doesn't mean these people are right. It's just that's what they get. And Ron DeSantis is no different. Donald Trump is no different. This is what they get. So I want to talk about this piece that was published in Law and Liberty. It's by Eric Kaufman. 
And it's a, about a new book, Conservatism in a Divided America, The Right and Identity Politics. It's written by a guy named George Hawley. And actually, Hawley teaches at the University of Alabama. He is a political science professor there. <clears throat> but he gets into um, how, how Americans have dealt with conservatism in the post-World War II period. What things they did to try to, to try to wrestle with some of the social and political movements of the post-World War II period. I've mentioned this with the Straussians. This is Harry Jaffa saying that equality is conservative because what he's trying to do is disarm the attacks on the American right, that they're just a bunch of racists and bigots and all these things. Well, if equality is conservative, then all these other people are still conservative. I mean, I understand why he did it, and I understand why people run around, and yet I just saw a tweet the other day from Charlie Kirk saying, I'm proud of uh, you know, Lincoln. I'm proud of the fact we waged a war to end slavery. And so basically what he's trying to do is, is show that he's sufficiently leftist enough not to get attacked as being a racist, but um, he still wants to champion uh, you know, uh, Ronald Reagan and Donald Trump. And I mean, this is the issue. Basically what we're doing is arguing over two different trajectories of the American left. Those that thought the the revolution stopped um, maybe around the late 19th century and those that thought the revolution is still continuing. Right? So, Or maybe the revolution stopped uh, when we got to Martin Luther King. I think that would be more like Charlie Kirk. The revolution stops at Martin Luther King. But the, the left thinks, no, 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 the revolution's ongoing. So the revolution was there. Reconstruction was there. We have to adopt and accept it. And actually, Hawley gets into that, which is rather interesting. So I'm going to read this review. I've not read Hawley's book. I'm going to get it uh, because I think it's just fascinating. But the piece says, American conservatism has always engaged in identity politics. We are tribal creatures, and a nod to our desire for identity and belonging is part of politics. While primal identities such as race or religion can lead to division, when these are sublimated into party and ideology in an attempt to launder such identities, they are neutralized, becoming part of a wider frame that is racially cross-cutting and checks extremism. This is the gist of George Hawley's fascinating new book, Conservatism in a Divided America, The Right and Identity Politics. So these, uh, these primal identities, race, religion, that leads to division, but when you throw them into politics, then something else comes out of it when you launder them, he's saying. What ideas should form the basis of conservatism, he asks. The post-1950s Republican strategy had been to lead with classical liberalism, fiscal conservatism, and military hawkishness while subtly signaling to white and Christian voters that the party is looking out for their group interests while doing little to advance those interests. I think he's, I mean, that's 100% right. He, he basically defined what the Republican Party has been about in the last well, 70 years. There isn't really a party anymore. That's, that's conservative. This formula succeeded in keeping the GOP in office from Nixon to Reagan to the Bushes, and its establishment continues to get its way even during the Trump era. I mean, I agree. There's nothing in that paragraph I don't agree with. Whether the Republicans can continue this balancing act is an open question. The universalist, classical liberal rhetoric of the establishment period is, for Hawley, 
politically irrelevant in our post-Cold War age. As he notes, calls for individualism built on arguments about natural rights are unlikely to persuade Americans to abandon identitarian concerns. Calls for individualism built on arguments about natural rights. Now, this is where the Straussians have... Uh, they've, they've tried, they're playing this a lot. I mean, this is Michael Anton. You listen to what he says about things. Well, we have to go back to a, a community of natural rights. They start really pushing the natural rights stuff. And when you can actually wade through what, what Anton has to say about stuff, it's, it's, uh, some of it is just maddening to try to read. But um, when you wade through it all, this is what he's getting to. We have to live in an era of natural rights. We have to talk about natural rights. We don't talk about natural rights. And he's doing this because you've got people that are saying, you know, this whole rhetoric is stupid. It doesn't work. It's not going to work. And essentially, that's what Hawley is saying. No, this is going to work anymore. We've, got, we've gone beyond that now. Content like Republican tribalism, however, may do the trick. The cult-like devotion to Trump and the stop the steal, despite his limited domestic policy wins and egotism, can look more like the relationship between fans and a pro wrestler than that of committed idealists assessing whether their leader is delivering for them. Now, again, it's not really an idealist. Is is natural? I mean, when you start talking about natural rights, you are getting into ideology now. But Trump was practical, and he talked about practical things. We're going to make America great again. We're going to bring back jobs. We're going to build the wall. He talked about practical things that people were worried about on an everyday basis because they saw these things as an existential threat. We don't have an income. We've got a drug problem in America. If we build the wall, we're going to keep some drugs out, fentanyl and other things. We've got problems. We've got problems that people see immigrants as coming in to try to steal jobs. I mean, take services, do these kind of things. Change the culture of a region. These are real problems. We've got Problems with leftists. This is DeSantis does a good job with this too in Florida and really attacking the left. We've got people trying to change the very definition of what have been traditional norms in America. We're, we're, they're trying to change these things. We're, these are these are tangible things we can see. It's not about I have a right to do this or a right to do that or a natural right to do this or that. That stuff. People people only listen to that if there's nothing else they see as tangible. If they can eat. Then they might devolve into a little more of the of the uh, you know philosophical underpinnings of American conservatism, whatever. If natural rights are even part of that, but but if they can't eat and they can't keep a job, and inflation is driving them nuts, and you got people stealing jobs in their mind, you got these things happening. You got people changing the culture. Those are tangible things they want addressed, and they just want somebody to do it. And they don't care how they do it. This is the whole thing about Trump. You know, the superhero riding in to save the day. They think that's what has to happen. The president has to be that. And while there are subtle associations between white, male, and Christian identities and the Republican brand, the party has been willing to embrace egalitarian tropes and reinforce progressive taboos like the Democrats of the real races to pump up the tribe and score rhetorical points. Yeah. I mean, this is 100% right. So... They have these things, but see, it doesn't matter. They don't really. They know they, they've got these people in their back pocket, and they can say things that don't really matter. I mean, this is where you get well. 
The Democrats are the ones who started the Klan. The Democrats are the ones that were secessionists. We're fine with taking down all of these Confederate things because those were just Democrats anyways. You see? What are you doing by that? <laughs> what have you just done? You've just said, we're abiding by a leftist vision of America from the 1860s. Now, what they don't recognize is that Republicans were saying a lot of racist things in the 1860s, too. Abraham Lincoln did. All, I mean, many of the Democrats did. Uh, the Republicans, I'm sorry. Many of the Republicans did. Many of the Republicans were saying just as racist things as the Democrats in the 1860s. That, that wasn't new. That wasn't unique to the Democrats. But it's playing this RD game, which is just completely stupid. It's the, it's the most idiotic thing that these people ever do, but it really does show you how dim-witted and stupid these people really are. It doesn't work, number one, because the Democrats aren't going to say, oh, well, yeah, uh, well, I guess uh, the Democrats are racist, then we are racist. It doesn't matter. You're just playing into their hands. Well, they, they would say, oh, we agree. We have to take down all racists. It doesn't matter. We don't care about those people. They were, they were the precursors to the Republican Party anyways. The Republican Party... As we flipped, we're the real party of Lincoln. You're not. When I think that the Republican Party is the party of Lincoln, the Democrats have just moved completely away from what the Democrats were. They don't care about those old Democrats. Those people were bad. They only care about the modern Democrats. And by modern Democrats, you have to start looking at, you know, basically from the Obama era forward. That's all they care about. They don't care about the Clintons. The Clintons were bad. You don't need them. FDR, okay, fine. But, you know, he had a lot of skeletons in his closet. Same thing with Harry Truman, LBJ. I mean, these people are all just, in so many ways, bad. We need, we need to talk about the new Democrats who don't have any of those stains of these things. It's, it's why Kamala Harris stands up in the Democratic primary and blasts Joe Biden for talking to segregationists. You see, they don't care about the old Democrat Party. They don't care if you call those people racists. Because they aren't their people. They think those are Republicans. He says, yet for Hawley, the circus, this circus act may possess aspects of nobility. It keeps primal identities and emotions from breaking the surface of politics. So Hawley thinks this is actually, it's, it's noble to do this because it keeps the, keeps the extremists out. Hawley, a young academic with seven books to his credit, is a rising star from the infinitesimally tiny universe of American political scientists who lean culturally conservative. A University of Alabama professor who hails from Sumas, Washington, Hawley has carved out a niche as, to quote an Amazon reviewer, an original and idiosyncratic thinker who writes original and idiosyncratic books. I'm willing to, to beat the partisan drum or champion a distinctive brand of conservatism. He toggles between the modes of detached observer and engaged moderate conservative. In so doing, he pushes back on progressive left alarmism, as well as the right's pretense that it has transcended identity to ascend the hollowed realm in which toga-clad individualists approach politics from an, from an Archimedean point, right? Uh, so uh, he's saying you, all these Straussians, I mean, they haven't really gotten beyond that. And uh, he, tr he tries to play this other ground. Now, I don't follow Holly. I'm probably going to after this, but I don't follow him. So I don't really know um, where Holly, where he stands a lot of this. And again, I haven't read his book. I'm, ba I'm 
basing this off of his review here, off this review at Law and Liberty. Uh, but this is a big question. Where do all these people fit? This book does us the service of knitting together the history of post-war American conservative thought. William F. Buckley, James uh, Burnham, Leo Strauss, Irving Kristol, and others with highly contemporary anti-leftist or conservative writers such as Ben Shapiro, Patrick Deenan, Jordan Peterson, Chris Rufo, Christina Hoff Summers, Oren Cast, Barry Weiss, Yoram Hazoni, Rich Lowry, and James Lindsay. Many of these figures, like their Cold War predecessors, unite behind classical liberalism, opposing identity politics, and more recently, wokeness. A garnish of religion or patriotism is occasionally applied, but for many, there is little beyond, beyond mid-century individualism. While communitarians such as Dean and Cass and Azoni meaningfully diverge, the most prominent conservative vo voices at CPAC and Congress and on Fox News largely recite anti-democratic boilerplate. Well, this is true. Uh, they're also, but even those other ones, are heavily influenced by Straussianism. And he brings up Leo Strauss. West Coast Straussianism, to be specific, and Harry Jaffa. You see, because they think that works. They think that's a winning message. They think this is a winning game if you just do this. For Hawley, one of the key tensions in American conservatism is how to manage the dissonance between the GOP's individualist philosophy and the identitarian motivations lying beneath the universalist surface. Drawing on a range of political science research that shows a correlation between measures of white Christian and Republican identification, Hawley argues that the progressive claim that these identities matter for Republican voters contains a large measure of truth. So when progressives say, well, these people are only worried about their own interests, white, conservative, uh, Christian, male, that those things are actually true. People do vote based on that. And what Hawley is saying, well, yeah, they do. Just like any other group of people votes based on their own perceived benefits and burdens or benefits to them for voting a particular way. There's nothing weird about that. We just tend to call it weird if one group does it, but every one group does it, every other group does it, but that one group can't do it. Right? We just think that's weird. It's not weird. It's what everybody does. Where he parts company with left liberal academics is that he believes elite conservatives are sincere in their desire to keep racists and other extremists out and are attached to classical liberal principles. I also agree with that. Their intense desire to keep these people out of the spotlight or at least out of uh, a way or away from a microphone, so to speak, or a way that they can get into uh, the mainstream. They want to do that because they think that America is generally a leftist center country. And I don't think that they're incorrect about that. They're generally a leftist center country, not a right center, but a left center. I think culturally Americans are a left center overall. I mean, this is what Americans generally tend to be. And, uh, or center left or, you know, that kind of thing. That's what they tend to be, and so they think that the only way they can win in national politics is to do these kind of things. To kind of use this very vanilla conservatism. We're just not as far left as these guys, but we think these guys are extreme, and they're Democrats, and look at the history of Democrats, and this kind of... They think that works. Now, it doesn't really. We've seen that 
an election cycle after election cycle after election cycle. 2012, we have vanilla Mitt Romney. 2008, we have vanilla John McCain. Now, of course, they're running against Barack Obama, who's using identity politics to a T to get elected. And so would Michelle Obama. They're using identity politics in a way that's going to ensure they win. Now, you could say, well, what about 2000 and 2004? Remember, George W. Bush did not get the total popular, did not get the majority of the popular vote in 2000. 2004, he barely got a majority over John Kerry. 2000, Al Gore wins. Go back to 96, you got Bill Clinton. 92, you got Bill Clinton. 88, you had the very vanilla George H.W. Bush. But in 1984 and 80, and of course, 88 Bush wins in a fairly big landslide because he's riding Reagan's coattails. Everybody thought the United States is doing great. We're just going to continue the Reagan revolution. And we didn't. But 80 and 84 was different. 80 and 84 had that um, appeal, that Trumpian appeal to a different kind of voter. It was the, the Reagan Democrats, the white working class Democrats that voted for Reagan because they thought that the Democrat Party had abandoned them. The same thing happened in 2016 with Trump. They, meaning these elite conservatives, lever leverage identitarian anxieties for electoral purposes without ministering to or espousing them. And while conservative intellectuals have generally opposed progressive initiatives, they have typically adjusted their views to remain respectable, adhering to shifting elite conventions and norms. Again, this is all true. It's all true. Some of this is pressure. You know, you get pressure to do these things because, well, you want to have a job. You want to have, you want to raise money. You want to do these things. You want to operate within the system. So the system requires you, the pressure requires you to do those things. If you don't and you go too far out there, well, then you, you won't, you won't keep the, you won't keep a job. You won't, you won't be able to raise money. You won't be able to do these things. You can't win elections, as thought. You can't do any of that. The Democrats can do it all day. The left can go as far left as they want. It doesn't matter. But conservatives can't really do that. The book begins with National Review Circles, National Review Circle in the 50s around editor William F. Buckley. These mid-century conservatives were centrally concerned with the Cold War and desperately sought to rescue the economic liberalism of pre-New Deal America. When it came to liberal cultural initiatives, the right was skeptical and instinctively opposed. Even though proportionally more Republicans and Democrats voted for the Civil Rights Act, this is not the case when you screen out the Dixiecrats, a largely autonomous entity by this time. Hawley notes that the early civil rights measure, California's Proposition 11 in 1946, which had made it illegal for employers to discriminate on the basis of race, was soundly defeated with greater opposition in Republican areas. In a similar vein, Buckley's 1957 editorial, While the South Must Prevail, made the argument that African Americans were not advanced enough to deserve the vote, though in time they could be enlightened to do so and able to do so. This said in the following issue of the magazine, Brent Bazell took the view that if the standard were applied to all, it must equally hold for less educated whites. He argued against Buckley that the segregationist position was dead wrong and would harm the conservative cause. There was no single editorial line. So you have two conservative, Buckley and Bozell, arguing one way or the other. 
Now, Bozell is important. 1957, this is before Jaffa's Equality is Conservative. He's trying to reconcile this. Bozell is saying this thing is going to be bad for conservatism. If we, if we take the segregationist position, we're going to lose. And I think what all these people saw was that the moral compass was moving away from it. Nobody outside of the South really wanted to think that people were being discriminated against. And one of the big driving factors, two of them, two cultural factors driving that. One was music by the 1950s, but in the 1940s, the other was professional sports. You had, of course, Jackie Robinson driving. Uh, by the 1950s, of course, you know, you have uh, music, but driving this interest in integration and uh, people looking at these major issues. You know, you had music, you had black artists producing music, but white artists were covering it. And so did you have the real black artists on the stage that sang it or you put the white artists out there? I mean, how does this work? You have white music and black music. That's always often divided. And, and look, the elites divided it up that way. They're the ones who determine that. But these cultural things are pushing music, entertainment, sports are pushing America in a much more leftist direction. And in this, to this day, that still does it. The entertainment industry pushes America to the left, culturally. And you can look at it the way people dress, the way people I mean, do things, to how, they, how they conduct themselves. This comes straight out of these cultural phenomena. Again, whether it's professional athletics, whether it's music, whether it's film, this is what people are doing because this is what they see and it's what they hear and they're influenced by it. As the civil rights movement progressed, the conservative stance shifted from ambivalent resistance to the new legislation to the view that desegregation was the right approach for government and public schools, but businesses should remain free to discriminate. Freedom of association and federalism were key constitutional principles that should not be superseded by equality law. More recently, Chris Caldwell argues that the Civil Rights Act in permitting the principle of equality to override these classical liberal cornerstones of the Constitution has fundamentally altered the basis of American law and, by extension, culture. And I agree. I've, I've, I did a podcast on Caldwell's book. I agree. I mean, he's saying the things that you're not, they're taboo things. You're not supposed to say this. But he's saying that this is correct. I mean, by because the law, and I talked about this last week, how stupid these leftists are that are trying to tear down the federal court system, it's the only thing that's protected their whole agenda. It still is, as I talked about earlier this week. It still is protecting their agenda. And it still is affecting culture. By the mid-1960s, the intellectual right had, in Hawley's estimation, conceded the moral high ground on civil rights and in addition became concerned that perceived American racism could damage the country's soft power in the fight against communism. Conservatives now viewed the early civil rights movement as a just cause that came to be supplanted by black power radicalism and affirmative action in the late 1960s. So again, what they've done is accepted the Lincolnian and Republican Party of the 1860s, their position, and said, well, we needed to stop, though, with Martin Luther King. Once we got beyond that, but the left will never do that. The left simply took the radical Republicans from the 1860s, just kept running with them. In the natural direction they were going to go, conservatives are saying, well, uh, we got to Martin Luther King, and that's good enough. It's good enough. We need to stop right there. But King was never a conservative. He's, he should never be cons called a conservative. None of these people were. 
Lincoln wasn't. The Republican Party wasn't. We don't. I mean, so saying we need to get here and stop, the left is saying, you're stupid. And they were. You're stupid. The revolution must continue. We need to keep recreating America. We need to keep reconstructing America, recreating it to be what Jefferson said it should have been. But he never believed it. Now, we believe it. Abraham Lincoln said it was this, but he never believed it. We believe it. That's the leftist mantra. So if you're going to say, well, we believe it too, but we got to stop here, why? Why do we have to stop there? If you really believe it, then we can't stop there. We have to keep going with the revolution. Hawley makes a... Oh, I'm sorry. Let me back up here. Uh, progressives often paint with a broad brush, perceiving conservative actions through the Mankian lens of racism. This is where Hawley, who is outside the left's echo chamber, offers a more granular perspective. He asks us to imagine an alternative scenario in which conservatives in the Republican Party lean to an explicit racial appeal, embracing the white superiority of a Wallace or a Thurmond. This would have unlocked a flood of Southern votes. Instead, the intellectual and political right endorsed civil rights, kept extremists out of the party, only elliptically signaled identitarian appeals, and sought to retain elite respectability. For this, they have received no credit from the liberals. This is true. I mean, look, Richard Nixon would complain. Halderman would complain in the Nixon administration. We're doing all this stuff the liberals should like, but they keep attacking us. Yes, because you're not sufficiently revolutionary. Why even, why even go into their, why lean into their agenda to begin with? Now, what he says about, of course, Wallace. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a very famous debate I've talked about on this show, Wallace against Buckley and Wallace making some points that Buckley just gets flabbergasted about. I mean, it's hilarious. Uh, but Wallace running in 68 and 72, more in 72 when he's when he's shot, Wallace was going to upset the apple cart because he was talking about things and not race. I mean, you look at his 72 campaign, you look at the literature that came out in 72, he wasn't really talking about race anymore. In fact, George Wallace, if you look at George Wallace's history, was not an ardent segregationist. He did it because he thought that's how he would get votes in Alabama. But when he lost to John Patterson in, in for, uh, for the Republican primary, when John Patterson became governor in 1960, when he lost to John Patterson, he said he would never let that happen again because he would never downplay the race issue in Alabama. Patterson had the endorsement of the KKK, uh, he had the endorsement of anybody that was uh, in favor of segregation in the state. Wallace didn't. Wallace was seen as an anti-segregationist kind of candidate. So Wallace said, well, it's never going to happen to me again. I'm going to make sure that I come out on the other side of this and I'm going to support these things that everyone says I don't. By the time you get to 72, though, he'd almost dropped all that stuff because he realized, well, that's not, I mean, that's not even going to be a winning issue in New York, but he goes to New York and he makes campaign speeches there and people show up in droves because Wallace is pushing for an America that is genuinely populist and really from the bottom up. Hawley makes a similar point with regard to Trump and white nationalism. Again, Hawley has done some of the most important work on this topic because though a critic of the alt-right's violent and exclusive vision, he does not feel the need to tip his cap to the progressive claim that we are all we are always just one rally away from Hitler's Germany or Bull, Bull Connors Alabama. He is thus able to smudge black-white narratives into more 
fine-grained shades of gray to help a, the reader grasp and the nuanced dynamics of the far right. He nicely parses the distance between uh, the ethnostate extremism of a William Pierce and the still violent but conventionally patriotic capital, I'm sorry, patriotic appeal of many of the January 6th rioters or Proud Boys. The Capitol riot was neither an insurrection, that is, the worst attack on our democracy since the Civil War, nor a normal tourist visit, but a riot in which a small number of participants possessed insurrectionary fantasies. Much more interesting than this state a stale debate, observes Holly, is the fact that the alt-right is virtually absent from the January 6th affray because doxing and lawsuits had successfully neutralized it. So January 6th didn't have all the stuff, all these alt-right things, all these people that uh, were at the you know 2017 Charlottesville situation because those people had been doxxed and exposed and they were denounced and everything else. Lawsuits. These people were just not part of it. They couldn't be because they didn't have the financial resources to be there. Um, and so, again, the, the uh, right, the Republicans are trying to ostracize these people, marginalize them. And then the January 6th situation becomes something entirely different. Hawley winds through sections on religious conservatism, national conservatism, the intellectual dark web, and wokeism, culminating in an intellectual humility that is rarely found among academics or journalists. This book would probably be more successful and controversial if I offer some type of plan for conservatives. Unfortunately, I remain as perplexed as I was at the start of the project. He grasps the importance of identity for Republican voters, expresses frustration at their emptiness of some of the party's mantras, yet wonders whether the noble lie of colorblind individualistic Americanism may in fact be the least worst option. So he's wondering out loud if what the Republicans are doing might be the least worst option. Uh, I think in some ways, just by looking at what he's gathered here and the evidence and the data he's gathered, this will be a valuable book to look at where some of these things are coming from, some of these different uh, strains of thought are coming from. Now, the rest of the book, he gets into some other things about uh, different parts of American conservatism, cultural conservative and populism, the history of that. And I don't really want to focus on that because it, we could, we, I could drag this podcast on for an hour in doing this. But I found this review to be fascinating because it does talk about the tension between idealism and practicalism, right? practical, tradition, the idealism and more importantly, tradition in American conservatism. What does it actually mean? And is the Republican Party really even conservative? No. Does it ever do anything as conservative? No. It's about, it's, the Republican Party is in it for the Republican Party, just as it always has been, right? It's, it's what Lincoln was doing in 1861. He's interested in preserving the Republican Party. That's very important. So I found this review to be fascinating. Again, uh, go out and get this book. It's by uh, Hawley. Uh, the title of the book is Conservatism in a Divided America. George Hawley teaches at the University of Alabama. All right. See you tomorrow on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.